0: Every technology provider wants to grow recurring revenues. Even more specifically, technology providers want to grow subscription revenues. In today's episode, I will be joined by Randy Wooten, the CEO of Maxio. We're going to click into tactics that can accelerate the growth of subscription revenues. And for those listeners not familiar with TSIA, we are a for-profit research institute we are on a mission to help our member companies run profitable technology business models that unlock real business value for customers. So let's get into it and Randy, thanks so much for joining us today. And can you introduce Maxio and and your role at Maxio to our audience here?
1: Sure, Thomas. It's great to be reconnected. I always enjoy the TSIA conferences I attended when I was at Salesforce and the other companies and highly recommend them for folks that are looking. Think about how to scale their operation more effectively. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, so I'm CEO of Maxio. This is the third time I've been CEO, hoping to get it right this time. <laughs> and Maxio is a merger of two companies, both leaders in their specific areas. SaaS Optics was around revenue recognition and Chargeify was billing. So Maxio together, which we launched on the 12th as the new brand, mm-hmm. the new application and the new website, helps SaaS companies unlock their next stage of growth. We're a financial operations platform, and it's designed to meet the unique financial challenges of B2B SaaS companies. This includes billing, subscription management, revenue and expense recognition, and then SaaS analytics, the metrics, which we'll get to in a little bit more detail later on. We believe that for SaaS companies, we primarily focus on the earlier stage, so one to $100 million Mm -hmm. stage companies. For them to unlock their next stage of growth, their financial operations tech stack must strike the right balance between flexibility which allows them to pivot quickly in an ever changing market and complexity, which supports them as they scale their businesses, operations, and monetization strategies. So, we'll talk a little bit about that in terms of monetization strategy, pricing strategy, PLG versus SMG. Mm-hmm. This is the types of problems that we're focused on.
0: See, I mean, this is great because you guys are basically in the guts, if you will, of companies trying to grow and manage those recurring revenues, which is great. And so you guys have great visibility of what you know companies are doing there. And you know, I was poking around on your website, and I know you guys talk about product-led growth versus sales-led growth. And and I would argue that the industry still is clearly dominated by sales-led growth. But you think that there's a future potential for product-led growth, so let's start there. What is your point of view on that?
1: Sure, and just for your listeners, let them know that there's a, a 24-page ebook that we've produced in the spring on PLG and the implications for uh, B2B SaaS companies. is available for free on our website, maxio.com, so that'll give a much yep. better point of view than I will in the, in the next two minutes. But what I would say is people are going nuts over PLG, mm-hmm. and there's really two reasons. One is higher growth and then, by extension, higher multiples. When you think about higher growth one of my favorite references is the open views product-led growth benchmarks that came out of the 2022 report and they showed that product-led growth companies are more than twice as likely to be growing more quickly than sales-led growth plg companies are averaging something like hundred percent year-over-year growth growth and from my experience we usually think successful b2b SaaS companies growing like 30 to 40 percent mm-hmm. year-over-year growth so it's almost double and then when you look at the multiples the higher growth rate with a lower acquisition costs for PLG, because you don't have that big sales yep. team, means their enterprise value is higher. And if you're looking at the PLG companies, it's about, again, 2x higher than public SaaS index. So everyone is jumping on the PLG bandwagon. There's a survey, the Enterprise Tech 30, which is a list of the best enterprise tech startups in 2022. And 80% of them have adopted or were built from the ground up with a product-led growth model. Probably the most famous one that your listeners will know about is Atlassian, Mm -hmm. that grew with no salespeople from being bootstrapped in uh, 2002 to nearly five billion dollars valuation in 2016. So I think Thomas, it's this whole idea of hey, there's a lot of growth at lower cost, and everyone's giving them great uh, multiples in the marketplace.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. I just had a meeting with an advisory board we have, just made of of companies born in the cloud, and we were talking about things that are top of mind or key initiatives and PLG across the board in all these companies, right? So even if that's not their heritage, it's now on the table for the product teams to start thinking about how to do this. So I agree with you. A, it's top of mind. B, uh, and we believe this like like you guys do, there's some real there there in terms of the economics. But I also think that you guys have a, a great perspective again, because of what you do for a living looking across it, that when companies start to grow that PLG channel, and obviously the sales channel doesn't go away, right? For, for you know, it's not like poof, it's not there. Yeah. You, you get some complexity related to pricing yeah. and billing. And can you uh, describe some of those challenges that you're seeing?
1: Sure. And I mean, and that's a big way takeaway, Thomas. It's not either or, it's a hybrid mm-hmm. approach. In the Open View report, they looked at 300 different companies and like 58% of them had a PLG motion, but most of them either started with SLG or layer in an SLG motion. Um, and this is for a couple of reasons that we'll talk about the complexity of PLG, but I think for most of your companies, they're probably familiar with uh, the SLG motion and they know that salespeople are great when you have high ACV, right? Versus product led growth, because there's a lot of questions. It's usually a buying team and a selling team, a pursuit team that's working across multiple personas and, and having to answer lots of different questions for you to sell those big enterprise deals. Sales teams often have an advantage in niche markets because the sellers have deep industry expertise Mm -hmm. and deep connections. And so, again, looking at what market you're in, if you're a horizontal platform where you can offer a free trial, then PLG might be a good option. But in general, sellers, there's still value there. You find that especially true in highly regulated industries like financial services, government services, public health. They all prefer to have one-on-one interactions because of the compliance mm-hmm. yep, requirements. Makes sense. So they want someone on the other end of the phone that they can look in the eye in and say, you're going to keep me out of jail, right? right? Yep. And uh, you can't do that through the website. Yep. So I don't think sales-led growth is going away anytime right. soon. I think it really is this idea that PLG allows you to go after a specific segment. Usually it's your SMB segment. You're offering some sort of easy sign-up, free trial, and your service experience has to be super intuitive as well. I think part of what has driven the growth of PLG is time to value. SaaS buyers are prioritizing self-service and intuitive onboarding. We all talk about the consumerization of IT, that everything kind of has to look like our Apple phones and be super easy to use. And people are, what we find and the research demonstrates our buyers want to do a bunch of research on their own. They want to be able to kick the tires on their own. And at some point they want to be able to get up and just try mm-hmm. it. And if you don't have that, you're creating a barrier to people like, you know, tasting, tasting the coffee before they buy the whole thing or something like that. And so I think these components mean that you also, though, have to design your entire system from your strategy to your structure, to your technology, to your service model, to be able to support a lower cost offering. And you know, Thomas, we've talked a lot about this over the years in terms of service structure and how do you create profitable onboarding and adoption. And it just changes radically in a world where it's PLG.
0: And so let me click into two things. First, this issue of Billing. And again, I think you guys are in the guts of this, you know, when you think about, and I've talked to several TSI members who say, you know, one of our problems as a B2B company is we don't freaking know how to even take a credit card. Yeah. (laughs) And so if you start to get into PLG type offers, you you know, you're, you're, you're talking about creating a model where from a billing perspective, the dollar values are going to typically be smaller. Again, like you said, the customer wants to be able to just put their credit card in on the website. So that that's a mind shift and a capability shift for a lot of companies. Do you see that?
1: Totally. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And what you'd say is that often so large companies are trying to roll out a PLG motion. that's kind of your, your reverse engineering, a whole construct. But if you're starting off as a smaller company, you start with PLG. Think about it. Like you're a CEO. You want to get paid. So you put a billing solution in your website or like, for example, we have a billing portal that you can just you know throw yeah. up into the interweb and your customers can see their bills and pay their bills um, directly through this yeah. interface. And then you have that embedded in your website and then you could be managing the credit cards, etc. But yeah, this whole idea of multiple billing capabilities, which are outside of invoice, is something that large companies are really going to struggle with. But the good news, Thomas, is there are solutions out there like ours that have that embedded in a financial operations platform. So you have the billing capability, the automated billing capability, the automated emailing to chase people to pay their bills so you don't have to have analysts calling. And then as you step up into the sales-led growth, which is usually an invoice, They're able to distribute invoices and you're able to track invoices, manage the invoices through one system. So this idea of financial operations is one where I think it's been kind of the wild, wild west. Like if you look at controllers and accountants, like they have gap, they build their three financial statements. The big argument is whether you put customer success above the line or below the line, right? But everything else is kind of locked in. But I think with billing and financial planning and analytics, it's the wild, wild west. People are using Excel. They have a bunch of different systems they're trying to put together. And so that was one of the value props of Maxio was this single system of record, source of truth for invoicing and billing data, which we'll get into in a little bit in terms of the reporting you get. But having that continuity across how do you do... Billing, subscription management, and revenue recognition is really yeah. important. And
0: then and then, let's talk about the pricing side of it because, you know, one of the friction points I see is when a traditional B2B company that was all sales-led growth now starts to spin up PLG-type offers and where literally the price is going to be unfolded to the customer through the product, right? Often I see yeah. sales teams kind of freak out about that because <laughs> they're like, whoa, 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 yeah. I, that quote has to come from me and this is really you know the product being prescriptive and just boom here here's the price click click the button do you you see sort of that same sort of cultural resistance
1: yes and i mean and the other thing is a lot of plg companies start out with free Uh, absolutely Right. right you have your free trial and so then you're getting upsold for if you're layering different levels of complexity or you want to have access to different parts of the product and then there's a hey now you pay your you know your 50 bucks i do think consumers, again, under the idea of consumerization of technology, we're getting used to subscription and paying for subscription. And so I, I, I think buyers want it. Um, and what you do is create additions. So you create an addition, which is a simple addition it provides some immediate time to value. People can get up and running in minutes. I'm, I used to talk about when I was in advertising, what Google did brilliantly was you were live in five, mm-hmm. you were live in five minutes. You put in your target audience, you put in your keywords, you put in your budget and your dates and you're up mm-hmm. and running. And so uh, immediately your marketing plan was being executed across yeah. Google for B2B SaaS, You're finding customers that want to get live immediately. And think about all those big ERP implementations that take months. We're talking about weeks or days for companies to get, uh, for customers to get up and running. And that is the standard in the market now. So I think salespeople, you you sort of have to draw this bright line between segments. And you say, for this SMB segment, for this low touch segment, there is no sales. Mm -hmm. It is only marketing. It's marketing driving them to the website. It's product, the engagement within the product, which becomes more intuitive, easier to get up and running. But that's your basic addition. And then you use feature flags or some other way to gray out um, the, the full robust experience and you you grow with your customers and you provide new capabilities. We talk about, uh, we help unlock customers next stage of growth. And so the set of capabilities we offer for someone who's seed is really different than what we offer for someone who's series C where they may be going in- international or now they have multiple products, multiple SKUs. And so they have this level of complexity. And so at each stage of growth, There's a different level of complexity that has to be managed and there's a perfect opportunity for a salesperson to come in, right? To make the bigger sell. You don't want your expensive salespeople working on an account that you're only going to charge a buck 99
0: for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, it's, it's, it's thinking and engineering that continuum. And, and again, if you're a sales led growth company historically, getting that channel that sales channel to get comfortable that there is going to be this other channel (laughs) that is product-led growth and it's a totally different you know uh, approach etc and as i listen to you 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 know i think again with b2b you think about this journey we've been on over the past let's say 20 years where in the old days if you're going to put in a new crm or erp or whatever you know you knew that that was going to be a, like a year journey for your company, right? You got to scope out, you know, the requirements, you got to do all this custom implementation integration. <laughs> then SaaS comes along and they say, look, you know, instead of that being many months, maybe it's a month or two, right? So they compress that. And, and now when you like, I love that phrase of, you know, live and five customers saying, no, I want to get running like today. I want to try it today. Yeah. And so we've compressed it down right. to that and you can't get there to to that sort of time frame unless you have this PLG mentality. You can't get there. That's not you can't have That's a right.
1: long sales cycle. Yeah, think about that Thomas. Is that, you know, if, if if someone shows up and they're on your website, they download some information and then they say, "Hey, I want a demo." It's got to go to like Chili Piper and your BDR has got to get on it. They do a discovery call. They do a qualifications. That's two to three days. If they find out they're qualified, they hand it off to an AE. You try to get the meeting done. It's maybe a week or two until that happens. And then there's a demo process. And so even us, when we're focused on mid-market, our average sales cycle is like 30, 45 yeah. days. Yeah. That's not okay. If you're in the world of PLG, where people can get up and running in a day, they get instantiated, they get their account going, they put credit card on and they're in trial mode and they're probably trying you for a week or two. And then you go try someone else for a week or two. And from that they're gathering data, but it's been low cost for them to do their trials. Sometimes they're free, easily to do comparison. And then if they're interested, they'll want to have that next set of conversations. And so I think of it as it's a lead gen model for a long-term relationship. If you're a B2B software that's trying to get to annuity revenue over time, you it's a it's a lead gen. I think for the sellers, what's interesting, it sort of moves them from doing outbound sales to almost expansion Absolutely. sales. And so they they we need to be able to segment the set of customers when they're coming in the cohorts based on the product that they're using. That's the other thing about product like growth is your your product needs to be telling you who's using what parts of the product. And then based on that, it tees up a really warm lead. I mean, they're, they're a customer at this point to a salesperson. So in some ways, salespeople are getting much better qualified opportunities. They're already using the system. You can see what they're doing in your system. You get a good indication of what, what areas they're interested in, what sort of questions they've had because you're tracking all the tickets and you can have a much better first call with them to do the upsell. So it's a slight a slight shift in terms of how you think what sellers need to be doing. But as, you know, as a former salesperson, I would love to have white hot opportunities that I look at every day when I come in in the morning. Well,
0: I mean, we just did this book, Digital Hesitation. There's a whole chapter in there about data-driven sales. And our assertion in, in that book is that sales organizations have got to become more data and analytics driven. And they're not, I'm sorry. In tech companies, they are not. They're just, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, you have a CRM in and, and you gotta beg them to put their opportunities in there and keep it accurate. That's like the the extent right. of it. It's like, no, we're talking about really in a sophisticated way using the telemetry from where? From, from like you said, from the product, uh, from the industry in general, general news, you know, there's financial information. There's a lot of telemetry that could be coming in yes. and you could be analyzing and to your point then prioritizing this is where you should really be focusing
1: yeah and you have all that background all that firmographic information yeah. that comes in through things like clearbit yeah. etc so i do think i mean this is a slightly different conversation we can have sometime but what is the modern hybrid sales model especially in a post-covid world right, war? right. Sellers need to have a sales cockpit where they're ingesting this information. And, you know, the sales ops, rev ops team needs to make it easy for them, primarily through Salesforce. But how do you represent the information for that specific opportunity, digesting it so that they know where to go? And then using systems like the company I just came from, seismic sales enablement Mm -hmm. systems to give you the content. That's personalized for you as a seller and the opportunity that you're prosecuting so you have a much better hit rate and conversion rate on each of the steps of the sell oh, definitely.
0: Site. I mean, I definitely think that's where the game is going. And it's a good segue to this general topic I wanted to talk to you about levers you see companies can pull to, yeah. to reduce you know, sales costs within a subscription model, because, you know, we, I think I was telling you, we, we track this thing called rack, which is revenue acquisition costs. Yeah. And it's using just the public data. And what we do is we take the percentage of revenue being spent on sales and marketing, and we divide into that the growth rate of the company. And so if you're spending yeah. 40% on sales and marketing and you're in your growth rates, 40%, your rack number would be one, yeah. which is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, but we see companies that have rack numbers of four, five, eight, which basically says they're spending, a lot on sales and marketing, and and they're not
1: growing, right? And so- Your metric rack is really interesting. I've never heard of it before. I think it's a really interesting calculation. In the SaaS world, what we are is a SaaS operating, uh, I mean, one of the original uh, companies was called SaaS Optics. There are some common metrics, one of which I think is really similar to yours. It's called the cost of acquisition, or sometimes it's called the SaaS CAC ratio. And it's super similar. It's you take your sales and marketing expense and you divide it by your net new right. ARR. And I'll get into the why that's important. But it's capturing the same idea of hey, how efficient is your sales and marketing? And interestingly, there's a guy named Ben Murray who uh, it's great. He's the SaaS CFO. He runs a course on SaaS mm-hmm. metrics. So if any of your audience or listeners is interested in getting a little bit more deep on yeah. these it's it worth doing. I, I took the course oh, yeah, no, I'm aware uh, and, work. and absolutely. really enjoyed yeah. it. But what he would say, similar to your analysis is looking at all the benchmark data out there that the top quartile companies spend $1 on sales and marketing to acquire $1 of net new ARR. The top third quartile is a buck mm-hmm. 33. So if you're more than a buck 33 in terms of sales and marketing versus net new ARR, you really need to look yeah, at absolutely. that and you know how are you going to reduce your sales and marketing expenses or increase your your net new arr the other thing given our background thomas your mind specifically thinking about customer success the thing about net new arr is it's a combination of your new bookings but it's also the 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 net arr that you're getting from current customers so expansion minus contraction and i think what a lot of companies don't do Thomas, is split their sales and marketing across what are they investing to get new logos versus what are they investing to get current customer expansions? And as we know, in recession, it's always easier to kind of grow your current customer base. So going back to the conversation about having with sales, where could they focus their energy and get the most bang for the buck? It's probably in their current customer base. And so if you're able to use these ratios to split out the motion between new and expansion, You'll have by segment, so SMB versus mid-market versus enterprise. You also split it by geography, region. You can start to understand where your growth is coming from, what you should double down well, on. Well,
0: you know, to validate what you're saying, several years ago we did a, a paper talking about CAC, Keck and Kirk. So what is so CAC as you describe? CAC was you know how much am I spending to acquire? CAC, what are my my uh, cost to expand customers? And Kirk, CRC is, mm-hmm. is what am I spending to renew customers? And our argument is exactly yeah. line with what you just said is you really need to understand how much you're spending those three different ways and CAC should be the most expensive, right And CAC and Kirk yeah. should be a lot lower you know and that's really your high margin revenue. Now the reason we put rack on the table is because so many companies, the vast majority of them can't tell you, cat Keck and Kirk, to your point, they're not tracking it that way. They just Like, look, man, I spend money yeah. on sales and marketing. Well, how much of that is over here, you know, act on physician? Well, yeah. I, I don't know. And I think if you really want to tune these models in with recurring yeah. revenues, you got to get down, you got to click yeah. into that level. You really do. Well, Thomas, I'm
1: getting goosebumps. I mean, you couldn't tee me up better. That's what Maxio I mean. does. That was the problem that I had at the last two companies I was CEO yeah. of, couldn't, Rocket Fuel and Percolate was this ARR management, your subscription management, your ARR recognition, and then the ARR representation, the analytics is really hard to do. And people are trying to do it in Excel when they have a lot of customers, Excel sort of shuts down on (laughs) you. So what I found for raising money, doing due diligence, doing business operations today, um, having these these reports at your fingertips, it changes your whole analysis. You can do cohort analysis. You can do your ARR waterfall. You you can have conversations about where it's yeah. coming from. And so ARR uh, for subscription businesses, it's more than just taking the contract value and dividing it by right. 12, especially when you start to have multiple types of SKUs. You and I were chatting a little bit about, well, how do you take on-prem legacy subscription and how do you break in the new right, business? Right. and that's all product SKU level information and you need to have a system that allows you to aggregate it and then disaggregate it so you can see what's happening. So,
0: so I'm curious, you know, as you opened up and described what you guys do for a living and this sweet spot with SaaS companies early stage and then and as they grow and they're getting more complexity and they need better, you know, more tools that can handle that complexity, right? What's interesting here though, as I listen to you, it is these massive tech companies that are legacy that have like no visibility in what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, you know why that is? It's because they have NetSuite and Intact. I mean, that's it. So when you're a small company, you start off with your GL is going to either be zero or it's going to be a QuickBooks open and you sort of move through, you know, to series C, start getting professional investors and they say, go with NetSuite and go with with Intact because of compliance, Mm -hmm. multi-entity, international, et cetera. Those systems are legacy ERP systems. And their are AR reporting.
0: They aren't it's, designed to handle the, the nuances that we're talking about here.
1: Yeah, they're horrible. I mean, I hope no one from NetSuite is listening, but, you know, it's everyone needs NetSuite in some way or intact because of compliance, but it doesn't do what we're talking about, which is ARR reporting, the recognition component, and just your ability to understand what's happening in a subscription. And we haven't even talked, Thomas, about usage. Like the latest, greatest thing is people want to move from subscription to Mm -hmm. usage. And so how do you capture that? It's a whole nother challenge. PLG companies are are really leading the way there and that, hey, you know, rather than paying a monthly subscription is let's talk about, you know, number of... X, Y, and Z attributes that you want to be tracking and charging on, and I think we're seeing this in the consumer space. We're seeing in the business space. Consumers are tired of paying, you know, fourteen ninety nine for Netflix. They want to pay going back to I just want to pay per movie that I download or whatever it is. But I do think that the large enterprise companies they're hamstrung by the enterprise systems they have in place, and the peep, and I guess the other piece point I would make. Is the way they solve this problem, Thomas, is they throw bodies at it. So when you're a large company, you can have 40 FNA phones. You, you can throw
0: throw yeah, a bunch of analysts, et cetera, you know, working on it. Yeah. Well, and I think in all fairness, the NetSuite and anyway, all these, you know, the legacy software providers is they were solving for different problems. Yeah, Totally. 100%. See see this is not like a you know somehow they messed this up. I mean these companies were solving for the problems of that time and now is again what we just we just talked about. You know, recurring revenues this is not a blunt instrument. You really have to be able to click That's in right. and be able to segment and all the things we just talked about and legacy systems just weren't designed with that in mind.
1: Yeah, and I mean, we've seen this, Thomas. I mean, this is the whole, to me, it seemed like the founding principle of TSIA is you are helping companies move from on-prem to the cloud. And it was a huge migration and and not everyone's there. I think, you tell me, but isn't it like 50% of companies today are now cloud based, but you still have 50%. Well,
0: I'll give you the landscape since you I know I have been watching this for, for a long time now unfold, right? So you always had the born in the cloud companies who were there, right? Like the sales forces of the world. Yep. You had the legacy software companies when, you know, like if you and I were working together, you know, eight or nine years ago, they were like, oh gosh, I got to start getting there. You look at that data now, if you're a serious legacy company and you're a software company, you're still in the game, you now have probably half or more of your revenue coming from the cloud. So they've made, that migration. Yeah. The final group here, interesting to watch, is these these big legacy hardware companies with, with a lot of on prem hardware, but they are converting that into more recurring subscription type relationships. Yeah, as a service. right. Yeah. So they're just yeah. starting to, you know, they're well below 50% on average. They're just starting to truly eat through that. And that's the last. Wave that's going to go through. But um, yeah, it is, it is, you know, it's been, uh, you know, really fun and interesting watching the whole industry go.
1: To that point, those hardware companies are are primary examples, or they have the opportunity to move to a usage. Oh, absolutely. They put the hardware in, there's some sort of cost for the hardware, but they don't want just the hardware cost. So they could discount it significantly if they had some other way to monetize it over time not subscription, usage, like, I don't know, number of terabytes, number of hits, number of spreadsheets, you know, there's all these things. Like I think about the world in terms of IoT moving out there where you have all of these different components that you can be pulling from and you could be gathering data on customers' usage, but you could also then be converting that into a pricing model where value is associated with usage. And so we call it multi-attribute billing. And so I think that is the next frontier, but it's going to take a long time for people to get there. And I mean, to your point, you know, the legacy products were there, solving a specific problem, but this next generation of technologies like ours that are going to solve the financial operations challenges that people have. So let me give you an example. One of the things about PLG, which is really interesting is you start to have flexibility where finance people can change the pricing without having to work with developers. Oh, interesting. And so they'll want to know when I introduce this pricing, this new contract, like literally change the yeah. price what happened what happened in terms of my ability to get people to sign up what happened in terms of my churn rates and so you now have this way of really without having to you know redo all the pricing price books etc you have this way of doing experimentation with go-to-market much like what we saw in marketing and advertising we do a b testing with your outbound marketing campaigns what's working on messaging you can do that now with pricing so CFOs and finance teams move from the back office to the front office. They help become strategic partners to go to market leaders because they're able to pull the levers. And then if you have the reporting, you can see what's working by product, by price point, by segment, by region. It's really so. Let,
0: boy, let's get into this because one of the things I did want to talk to you about is pricing in tech. Is it going to become you know more complex or less complex? What you just said, is, I would use the word sophisticated, you just basically put on the table, yeah. it's going to become more sophisticated on how we test our prices. Yep. And I'll go back to this advisory board meeting I just had, because one of the things we were talking about was pricing. And what I was asking the group is about price increases because of inflation. And what's interesting is in tech, because price has been going down and down and down for our customers, right? I mean, we've been putting better solutions on the table for less money. And so suddenly in the world of tech, We are faced with our costs going up. Like, you know, you look at a SaaS company, man, their labor costs are going up. If they're hosted on AWS or Google, whatever, their infrastructure costs are going up. At some point, your price has got to go up. So these companies have to build a muscle. But what does that look like right now? What that looks like right now is you do this sort of big push of a price increase. And maybe you're increasing prices instead of doing it once a year. Maybe you do it. Hey, I have to do it every six months. Like, that's it. That's nowhere near the level of sophistication you just articulated, which is what if I could A-B test price increases, different geographies, different products, different offers and say, hey, this price increase is going to work. This one, not so much. That's what you're describing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so again, we did a state of the billing report on our website Mm -hmm. um, as of January. And what we found was that SaaS companies review their pricing on an annual or biannual basis. That sounds right to me. But the leaders are doing it quarterly and they're doing this kind of, it's like an ever changing pricing, but it's custom. It's like what the airlines are doing to us, right? If I go try to get a flight to Hawaii and you know, my IP is in Oakland and they know I'm, I've been to their site multiple times. The price I'm going to pay is a lot more than the person that's just trying to get to fly Hawaiian for the first time. And I kind of know it and it sort of bums me out, but I'm also like, well, it's fine. I think that I, you'll see that same sort of price elasticity and flexibility yeah. playing out. And that really is the wave of usage-based pricing that we were just talking a little Absolutely. bit. Absolutely. In a recent survey conducted by Maxio, RevOps Square, the SaaS CFO of the 490 participants, 79% said that they either use or are planning to introduce some form of usage-based pricing in the next 12 yeah, months. Yeah. So if all of these companies, these you know, fast-growing B2B SaaS companies are offering usage-based pricing and the legacy big companies aren't, that's how we're going to pick customers off.
0: You know, our belief is pricing models go to both usage and ultimately some type of value realization, right? Where you basically are, are t- yeah. showing the customer because you use this. Here's the business value that I can vend, right? That I that I unlocked for you. But I do think that the vast majority of tech companies, they're starting to talk about usage-based and value-based t- type of pricing models. They are ill-equipped to execute on that, right? again yeah. they, Well, that's it.
1: You can't do this with analysts in an yeah, Excel file. No, no, no. no. You've got you, you to be way more... Pricing is... I mean there're a bunch of people out there like we're we're working on our pricing. We just launched new pricing. We hired a great consultant to come in yeah. and help with it. And you can you you know you can spend millions of dollars with McKinsey's or you can go find the boutique shops to help. It was fascinating for me Thomas when I joined this company 4 months ago, Batteries are Investor, mm-hmm. ba- Battery Ventures, one of the top tier ventures in the in the country and I came in the door and one of the first things they said was Randy, we really want to go through and do pricing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Really?" And they said, they said that is the number one thing they feel that their portfolio companies are not adept yeah. at or are realizing the full value is what you could be doing with pricing. And so, you know, a full pricing study is you're, you're going out and you're talking to customers, you're talking to analysts, you're talking to prospects, you're, you're checking out what the competitors are doing. But that's almost like it's a strategic discipline that you need to have in-house in terms of someone who your pricings are. And they either have a set of people that are working for them, much like you have with market research, you have pricing research, you know, pricing SWAT team, or you have a set of consultants that are helping you. But I think what we're going to find is it's going to continually unfold. And much like with the marketplace dynamics you see with Expedia and others, that they're clearing, you know, hotel prices and airline prices. I mean, tech, will it be spot pricing? Probably never spot pricing, but it's certainly going to change more frequently than once a year if you want to. Oh, yeah, it. absolutely. So I'll
0: put two things on the table with what you said there. Number one, I had a flashback from one of my old MBA professors said, the easiest, fastest way to improve the profitability of any company is through pricing. <laughs> right, That's the easiest, yeah. fastest way, number one. Number two, though, again, pricing, I believe, is not going to be about um, you know, let's do a survey or let's do a competitor, it is going to be a data driven approach. Yep. You are going to be looking yep. at the reality yep. of your of what customers are doing or not doing. Like you said, I mean yep. the airline examples, why can they charge you more than that other person? Because they have the telemetry. And they know what you're that's willing right. to pay versus you know that's right. and so that's exactly right. and that's fair. That's a fair game, right? Because you value yeah. that particular trip to Hawaii, whatever.
1: At that at time, that time on and that they know day, you're going to pay it. it. And so
0: that's fair game, and in B two B, that's what we're you know that's where the game's going to go. And to your point, companies that don't get their heads around that, uh, again, are going to like look like dinosaurs with very blunt instruments on what they're trying to charge their customers or how they do it.
1: And you know, Thomas, this is where your your larger customers, the ones that are the yep. big companies, then are, are, have a huge advantage because they have such a large install yep. base, right? They're able to do these pricing experiments. By micro region, like let's do it in Atlanta versus Nashville. And they're going to have so many customers. They're going to get good fidelity of data to help inform yep. what changes. And then the data you need to have is both the renewal yep. data. So, okay, if we, if we increase price for these set of customers, does churn go up? Well, that might be okay because it's offset by the increase in price, right? So it's this balancing of those two things. And then these other pieces on new logos, if they if they have enough data on a specific ICP, and they go out for new logos and they do that pricing experimentation, they can figure out what's working on conversion rates and they can toggle it and say, Hey, we need to get more logos in. We're willing to go a little bit lower on price for this month or this quarter. But as we come into the back half of uh, the year, we know that people need our stuff. And so we're going to increase price and we may get fewer logos, but we know they're going to be with us longer. And so that cohort analysis by product and price is as important as you do cohort analysis by year when they started Mm -hmm. with you. And to your point, it's the level of data you need is much more granular than any, I think many companies appreciate. And it's not to scare people. It's just like, there are systems that do this, right? It's like, this is where we are. This is what technology helps us do is deal with complexity much more elegantly. Yeah, and
0: I I hope that some of our companies from larger listeners really just onboarded what you said, which is there is an advantage there. A lot of times these larger companies, again, they have legacy systems I mean, they don't think they're not getting the data they want yet and they feel incredibly handicapped, right? Compared to some, you know, small, nimble startup. But this is a perfect example of where your size, your install base, your presence could create a real advantage, but you got to lean into it. Totally. You got to lean into it.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing, Thomas, on that point is this is where you get in. Look, I've been at Microsoft. I was at Salesforce. I appreciate, you know, the fiefdoms. It's Machiavelli's Prince. Everyone's trying to protect their territory. But I I really do think this is where like the finance professionals have to decide that they want to be strategic advisors to go to market and they take responsibility for their tech and their data. And so when you look at subscription business, the office of the CFO is actually growing in terms of investments that they're making technology compared to the rise of subscription investments more yep. broadly. And I think it's because these financial professionals are like, look, I can't rely on IT to be the ones who solve my problems. It's like what CROs did, uh, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. They took sales tech in-house and they built out sales mm-hmm. ops and they bought Salesforce, right? That was Salesforce's brilliant insight was they, was they sold around the, the, the head of mm-hmm. IT. They sold to the sales right. leader and said, we can make your job more efficient, more effective, give you the information you need to be able to do your forecasting. And I think IT has evolved since then to be partners to business. And I think CFOs, fp folks need to sort of assert themselves as strategic partners to go to market strategy and take responsibility for the tech and the data and the people to run it that are going to be doing it rather than just doing models. It's how do you create insights that drive strategy?
0: You know, it it will, and I think we're going to get on this thread, but I think it's a great one in terms of the role of finance, you know, as companies are going through these transformations and these business models as, again, all these new concepts start to fly around. And I do think that this is a cultural shift. They have to be forward-thinking and strategic because finance traditionally is very risk-averse and conservative. Yeah. Right. So what you yep. just articulated was a completely different mindset for the yeah. you know people that are in finance. And I hope there are people in finance listening because I think you're spot on. That's a really huge strategic value add role they can play for companies when it comes to again, how we think about pricing, how we're thinking about our you know, our telemetry and we're leveraging it. So it's good. Hey, I wanna I wanna shift gears. I wanna talk just a little bit before I let you go here because this conversation has been fantastic about the current economic environment. And, and as you're, yeah. again, you're dealing with a lot of earlier stage SaaS companies. And do you think that investors are truly changing their perspective on what defines a healthy SaaS business model? Because I know from watching this for years, it's been about growth, 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 the torpedoes, who cares about profitability, just grow, baby, yeah, right. grow. And but then now you can read a lot more articles where there's one in the Wall Street Journal a couple, uh, just a couple of weeks ago about how one of the big PE firms was giving the guidance that, hey, you got to be thinking about profitability and smart growth and unit economics. Yep. W- where do you think that is right now?
1: It, it changed overnight. Did it really?
0: Yeah, it did.
1: Yeah, changed overnight. Back up three or four months ago, changed overnight. It went from growth at any cost to disciplined yeah. growth. And the metric that I've been writing about and talking to a lot of folks about is the rule of 40. Yeah. And it's the rule of 40 for people who don't know it's You take your growth rate, you subtract that. We use EBITDA in in our world, right? EBITDA is a proxy for profitability and you should have 40%. So if you have 40% growth, you can be zero or break even. If you have a hundred percent growth, you can be up to like negative 60% in EBITDA. And what this allows you to do is really balance how are you gonna invest in growth versus drive to profitability. Everyone I'm talking to talks about how they need to get onto the rule of 40. One thing I would offer, well, I'll give you two things. One is there are different profiles of rule of 40. If I'm growing 40% and profitable, if I have a little wobble in my bookings, I don't have to cut people. I just pull back a little bit Mm -hmm. on expenses. If you're growing at 100% and you have negative 60% EBITDA, still rule of 40, and you have a wobble on your bookings, now you're talking about cutting people. So you know, I talk about battening down the hatches. You want to be anticipating the recession. You want to be slowing things down. And if you have great growth, great, but you got to be really working towards disciplined growth where you're showing, going back to customer acquisition costs like we were talking before, segment analysis, what are the growth levels you're, you're, you're uh, betting on? Every VC CEO that I've talked to talks about how their VCs are telling them, batten down the hatches, try to get enough cash for two and a half years. It used to be 18 months. Yeah. You would go through a cycle. You'd raise your money. You would have 18 months out. You'd start raising money in 12 months, and your milestones was 18 months. But for VCs, it's easy for them to pull yeah. back. I'm like, no, 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 no. You make it right. work. So I think for these these high-growth startups, this way of thinking about the world, which is this balance between growth but not growth at all costs, is really changed, and it was overnight. Yeah. Well, you know, there.
0: everybody talks about the Fed taking the punch bowl away, right? With cheap money. I, I would say, yeah. I'd submit that the VCs have, have taken the punch bowl away from a lot of these startups as well and said, look, what yeah. you just said, you got to make it, you got to make it last. You got to get it, you know, under yeah. under control. And uh, so I do think that this is a, not a short term experience right now. I, I think that money's going to be expensive for a while. I think that it's going to be a new world order. You talk about the rule of 40, every quarter, we do an industry snapshot. We look at legacy tech companies. We also look at what we call the TSI cloud 40, 40 of the largest born in the cloud companies. Yeah, Yeah, And we we do two, we put two rules together. One is the rule of 40, and we see how many companies are adhering to that. By the way, Randy, you would be shocked. You look at these largest born in the cloud 40 companies, typically any given quarter, there's only two or three true rule of 40 companies, the rest are not. Yeah, The rest are not. So yeah. it is, most companies are, are not even close to that. That's one problem. We then add what we call the rule of 35. And what we do is we say, look, take your revenue, subtract, your COGS and your sales and marketing costs? And do you have 35% left? That's where you get to rule 35. So it's the other side of the coin of growth, which is, are your costs under control? Yes or no. Yeah. And we are finding that companies that are rule of 40 and rule of 35. And so like you, it's a way to describe the spectrum you just described, right? They're not so wobbly. They're yes. meeting both of those rules. They've got their costs under control and they're growing well, as opposed to a company that is just their cost structure. You know, they're still spending 60 percent on sales and marketing, right? They, you know, their gross margin is sixty-five yeah. percent. I mean, those companies are wobbling, yeah. and so I think that the rule of thirty-five and the rule of forty are both going to be in play even more so moving forward. Because again, I don't think this is a short, short-term focus on you know the viability of these business models. That people are going to have to get more serious.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Thomas. And I'll do one last pitch for Maxio. Oh, yeah, go ahead, mind. go it's for it. Like. Being the system of record for invoicing and billing allows you to do all that analysis. So metrics like uh, uh, lifetime value of customer versus CAC. So LTV to CAC. One of the ratios out there is three mm-hmm. to one. Uh, the magic number, right? Being greater than 0. 0.7 of the magic number. Um, their pipeline health. You got three to four X pipeline health. So all, what I think what's interesting is you take in finance, you have controllers that produce your financial statements. As we talked about before, the only thing you can argue about is, where do you put customer success above or yeah. below the level of line? In FPNA, you have all of these potential metrics that you can have access to. And if you have a system that allows you to do the reporting on it. And so, like my ELT meeting, you sort of look at the PL and you say, hey, do we have enough cash? When's our zero cash day? Well, we spend all of our time looking at the SaaS operating metrics. And there's probably 12 that are really important for a company that's getting into the space to look at, it can give you incredible insight in terms of you know operating leverage, how does your operating leverage work? All the benchmarks you use in terms of percent of spend for each of your cost centers. There's an enormous amount of material out there you can compare as benchmarks. And then you have these other operating metrics uh, that you can be looking at to better understand how you're doing. So it's not like you're flying blind. Yeah, yeah. Like I used to fly planes in the Navy, and the way I describe it to people is it's like you have a radar now and you can fly at night through the mountains and you're going to be yeah. safe because you have a radar that you yeah. can use. And it's all about understanding what's happening in your SaaS operating yeah. metrics.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I agree with what you're saying there. And you know, this has been a great discussion today. Again, I really appreciate your time. And we really did click into where these models are going to go in terms of pricing rev rec, and rev and the new types of metrics that you really need to understand, the data you need to really truly be looking at. So I always like to end these podcasts with the question of the day. And so uh, the question of, of the day to our listeners is, are, are your systems ready for this new world order? Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks again, Randy. Cheers. <laughs>